Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Texas Slim, founder of the Beef Initiative, a way to source your own beef. We talk about the food industrial complex and all the different trusted third parties in the chain from farm to table. We also talk about how food has been debased with the money and how Bitcoin will make our food supply better. Texas Slim, how's everything going? Man, it's going good today. A pretty great weekend this past weekend, and I was looking forward to today to talk with you again. Mm. Well, before we sort of like get into all of that, can you tell my audience what your background is and what you do? Well, my background is I'm a native Texan, many generations, grew up in the Texas panhandle. And when I was a young man, pretty young, 18, 19, I can't really remember, I moved to Austin, Texas. And it was a good time to explore. And I got into technology and I got into a lot of startup, basically mindsets that were around at that time. And it was time of innovation. So I was kind of self-taught in technology and I had a lot of good jobs. I had several startups that I was part of that did very well. And, but the way I grew up was, it was totally different from kind of how I lived in Austin as far as my professional career. I come from agriculture. I come from, my grandfather was a farmer. We come from many generations of farming and ranching in the Texas panhandle. So my skill set was pretty, in the beginning, was a low time preference kind of blue collar skill set. So as I've aged and during COVID, I said, I need to do something. And I looked at the food industry and I was looking into Bitcoin at the same time. And I've decided to create something called the Beef Initiative. And what I'm trying to do with the Beef Initiative is to get some food intelligence back into our lives, into understanding how our food system works and how we can create market access to pure animal protein. And that's kind of the long and the short of it. I believe our conversation will kind of evolve into, you know, a bigger picture. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so tell me about food and why you chose that, because you obviously had a lot of different options on what you could have gone and done. But you seem to have a real heart for this, you know, the food that we eat. And so what makes you so passionate about this particular area? I've always eaten pretty well. You know, our our family came from eating farm raised, you know, produce and protein. It was something that I knew that I could reflect on as far as understanding what food is and going through the last couple of decades, seeing what has happened to our nation as as far as our health and reflecting about what had happened with our farming industry the last 50 years, because I'm a very big man of heritage and tradition and history. A couple of years ago, I got laid up with an injury. And so I started looking at, I was laid up for about six weeks, six months. It was a gradual process to healing. So I said, I'm going to really look at food here. And I want to really kind of get, you know, a new base layer value of understanding of nutrition again. You know, it was something that I, I just wanted to learn. I have a son, he's growing up. I wanted to just be responsible about my consumption because my consumption from, you know, from digital consumption to audio consumption to video consumption, I was just taking a look at. And I gravitated towards food because of my understanding of my childhood and of my ancestors. At that same time, I was really studying Bitcoin as much as I could understand it, of course. I was putting as much time as I could into it and being very intentional. 
there became a symbiotic understanding that started having a new value and it started exposing a lot of deception within our food. And I started looking at the health of our nation and, you know, today in America in 2022, 70% of our, 78% of our citizens are either obese or overweight. Fifty, or I'd say, forty-six percent of our children between five and eleven are obese or overweight. One out of two of adults in this nation are now diabetic or pre-diabetic. So I started using my analysis and research skills, and I started building an algorithm around decentralized food and how can we achieve this. Well, so tell me more about what it is about food that's wrong today, right? Because you're saying that we have all of these problems, including obesity, diabetes, all of that. What's the problem? Why are they that way? Why are we that sure. way? What's going on? What's the actual problem here? Well, what I really focused on is what do we consider food anymore? I think that is something that is still a big question mark in our nation. We were overfed right now and undernourished. And that's something that we've never had in, in history. So as far as looking at food and understanding how it is basically become corrupted, you just have to look at the basically from the source of the seed of where our seed comes from through the process of, of growing that seed, processing that seed into a product and what the whole basically chain of events that happens. Once you start looking at that, you see that how detached we are from that source of the seed from the beginning that used to feed our local communities. And by saying that, how centralized our food has become, basically the nutritional value of our food has been lost. And I like to tell people that our food supply now is nothing more than a global marketing plan with intentions that are different than to keep you basically well-nourished and with high nutritional value. The more the food is processed, the less nutritional value it has. That is just part of the seed. That is part of, you know, that is part of nutrition one-on-one. What are we putting in our food? That is the biggest red flag that is easy to identify as far as what are we consuming as citizens in the United States and, of course, globally. What we're doing is we're creating fake commodities that we just started creating and really started bringing to the market there's been a long time frame of, of experimenting with types of processed food, but I really focused on what happened after the dollar lost its value after, you know, what the heck happened after 1971. And by looking at that and how our, uh, the, the debasement of our dollar has followed the debasement of our food and the value of our food and the nutritional value of our food. I looked at one particular plant it's called rapeseed. And what it is uh, known to the general public is canola. It's a seed oil. And so if you look at how we've evolved into using seed oils, you can correlate just this one thing, just seed oils alone. Of course, you have sugar, you have refined sugar, you have high fructose corn syrup. You have so many things that have taken place as far as the marketing plan of what is good for you, what is safe and what is not safe. And those standards have definitely been manipulated throughout the years. So going back to rapeseed in 1956, the FDA actually outlawed rapeseed by any, to, for any human consumption. That is our FDA. 
And right now is one of the biggest fake commodity products that hit our market. And it's basically in everything that we eat from candy bars to frying all of the fast food across the nation. So many different uses that it just ends up in our food products because it can. And there's a there's a profit margin that is built into our food based on consumption of rapeseed. So Mm -hmm. if you just look at that one indicator right there, you can say, something's wrong with our food because the overproduction of this plant, the rapeseed, how it is subsidized, the profit margins that are driven by this rapeseed, which is canola, you know, it has nothing to do with food and it has nothing to do with nutrition. And once we bring that awareness, you, you, it takes you down rabbit holes once again into let's look at soybean, soybean oils, how they use that in every fake meat product and meat products, soybeans being used as a form of protein for children, and which is it's very dangerous because it's not pure animal protein. If you're very intentional with your education and looking individually at the food that you consume and knowing where it came from, you're going to uncover many deceptions that have been going on throughout all, all of our lives. And, you know, that's, the, that's where you begin the conversation. Hmm. Well, let's dive into that because I think, as you're saying, there's a lot of financial motive for a lot of this sort of debasement of food. And as you were saying, you know, rapeseed oil is in all sorts of things. How does the money part work? Like, how does a corporation profit by using rapeseed oil instead of, say, something more healthy like lard? Well, going back, listen, going back to lard, there was a big mm-hmm. movement. Lard was replaced as far as consumption by by us is by humans, and it it was labeled as something that was a health risk. And it started basically in the 1950s when Dwight D. Eisenhower had a heart attack, you know, as president of the United States, everybody was kind of shocked and it, it got a lot mm-hmm. of press. And once that got a lot of press, there's a lot of studies, you know, let's study the heart, let's study the heart. There's so many different reasons that you can look at is like, you know, how we got here with canola. But just in the beginning, animal protein and basically animal fat in our diets was said to cause heart attacks. (laughs) And there was a guy out there named Ansel Keys, and he did a lot of studies. He was a good, he, he liked to talk to politicians. He was very good with talking with politicians. And so he had many studies that, you know, the government relied on saying that cholesterol was bad for you. Well, the cholesterol that's bad for you was from animal fat. And just going down the Ansel Keys rabbit hole, you can kind of see that whole correlation of, you know, when it came into the, the, the mindset of Americans that were trying to do the right thing. They wanted to eat healthy. They, they didn't want to have heart attacks. And so they listened to the government. Well, by, by being, you know, when it's government led in that way, you create these types of food companies and you create the apparatus in which we live in today, the medical, pharmaceutical, agricultural complex. They're all combined together. They're, they all are the same companies. And whenever you get these companies that have evolved, let's say from Procter Gamble in the early 1900s, which invented Crisco from cottonseed that they were using for candles before electricity into 2022, we have in a, across the, the globe, we have a global food corporation that controls the seed all the way to your table. And it's done with global intent not with community intent and not with nutritional 
intent. And there's many studies we can, we can talk about canola for four podcasts and we could just break <laughs> it up and people say, well, why? Well, because it's a cheap product that they can incorporate as a commodity into your diet. And that means high consumption. You look how Americans consume food. Now our food is processed to make you taste, make it taste good. And for you to be hungry in four hours by eliminating animal protein as they have done, and they are trying to be successful in a new phase here, you eliminate animal protein, you increase processed carbohydrates into your diet. You're nothing but generating insulin and you're running on a system that keeps you forever hungry and you're, you're never full and you're always consuming. There's a lot of chemicals that they are able to introduce into our food supply. Even this last year, the FDA won a lawsuit and they're going to be able, and it's under the grass rule, which is something called generally recognized as safe. In October of 2021, FDA won a lawsuit where they are now going to be able to put a thousand new chemicals into our food system in 2022. And we say, well, how can that be? Well, the FDA says it's generally recognized as safe. They don't have to identify those chemicals. A lot of those chemicals are used to basically create an industrial food complex, which makes our food highly processed. There's profit margins across the spectrum of our processing apparatus that we would build based on these fake commodities. Hmm. Well, so it's interesting because you talk about animal protein and like soybean as being like this, you know, plant protein. They're almost like completely separate. The, the fact that we call them proteins with the same word is kind of a deception, isn't it? It's a huge deception. And that's, you know, within my new stack, uh, Substack when I first started, you know, I, I said, this is the harvest of deception. This is where it starts. It starts in the seed. And for them to say something like soy protein, which is derived from a genetically modified organism <laughs> and saying that that is a good source of protein, then that's a good supplement to be able to to for your body to take in as far as we have done as far as our ancestors our grandfathers our great grand we came here with animal protein and the marketing plan behind this is as i say you know it's a global marketing plan the type of information the type of labeling that we're able to get away with in our food system right now is extremely corrupt from the organic to grass-fed to just now you, they're not even going to say organic or um, they're not even going to say GMO free anymore. They're going to say bioengineered. Nobody knows what that means. Well, <laughs> there has a new classification of what bioengineered is. And we have a new labeling law where they don't have to explain anything. They're going to put a barcode on your food and they say, oh, you can scan this and we'll take you to a, a terms of conditions. Basically, it looks like a Facebook terms and conditions. And we'll tell you what bioengineering is. And nobody's going to do that. They're going to buy whatever it is because it tastes good. And they're never going to scan it. They're never going to read it. And they're just going to say, this is what I eat. This is food. The FDA and the USDA said it was food. So I'm going to, I'm going to trust the label. Hmm. Well, let's go back to sort of like the vilification of animal fat, because that that to me is is kind of very strange because in a sense, they substituted something that was very, very healthy, uh, at least as far as I can tell from my sort of eating, you know, animal fats like, uh, you know, lard and tallow and things like that. And uh, of course, animal protein comes with a lot of animal fat, especially like the fattier cuts, which tend to be a lot more tasty. And 
that's been substituted with these like almost toxic chemicals of you know that come from you know that are i guess extracted from seed in some way shape or form how did they get away with that kind of deception because in a sense like seed oils have this incredibly negative effect on your body including a lot of what you've already mentioned and uh, but you know one was very satisfying to eat and you wouldn't be hungry for a while the other is just kind of makes you hungry and has all sorts of health consequences that a lot of people don't necessarily know about, but are, can feel and we, we can kind of see it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, the vilification of animal fat, I think there was a lot of things that happened within the nation that was always something, it was kind of a trendy pop culture thing. And it, it was always based on pay, people positioning themselves correctly with the United States government and creating this deception of what is true nutrition, what is true protein, what is actually healthy and what is not healthy. Whenever you have a company like Procter and Gamble at that time that was very, very wealthy, they were very powerful and they had to basically, they were making, you know, candles out of cottonseed. And whenever they were able to transition from candles and soaps basically as well into a consumable product. Let's just stop right there into a consumable product. Where's the problem with that first decision in 1900? Who made that decision? Well, it was basically because people are very good at manipulating a centralized form of control of government. Once you're able to centralize that, basically centralize that whenever you can manipulate that centralized control you are able to create a narrative in many forms of fashions in especially in the United States of America, from the institutions of academia to the institutions of the medical industry to the institutions of the pharmaceutical industry to the institutions of the agricultural industry. Once you have that type of power, you what is your what is your true intent at that time? Is it really that you want that Crisco to make that little boy's life better? Or is it, do you start off in 1900 saying we need to get these profit margins back in the way that we were before electricity came along? Well, that creates a standard of behavior, standard of type of thinking. And once you can gain profit out of something that is not expensive, that it doesn't have a high cost margin that you can actually control from a centralized apparatus, then of course you're going to move forward with that. And let's, what do you do with that? Well, let's vilify animal fat. It's horrible. We're going against the ranchers here. We're going against animal protein producers. And so once you, you have that war that has been going on for, for, I don't know, centuries, but in the United States of America, beef was keen, you know, and me coming from the state of Texas, after we basically got through the civil war, after we had become our own republic, In 1878, we had something happen in the state of Texas that really opened up Texas. And a lot of people don't understand the true history of Texas about what happened at that time. You had a basically a nation that needed to be fed and Texas fed that nation. And thus you had the cattle drive. You had all these cattle that had been roaming all over the state of Texas during the Civil War during many years A lot of those cattle came from Mexico originally. Of course, the Spaniards brought them many, many years ago before that. So if you look at how the the animal protein industry evolved, it was, you know, something that was very pioneering and it was, it was, it fed the nation. It made us strong. 
whenever you get into an apparatus in the 1900s where you can actually be part of the the movement of the U.S. dollar, the power of the U.S. dollar, the power of a nation, there's a lot of things that get implemented way back when that, you know, you can trace every one of them from the cholesterol lie to fat fiction, what is fat, what causes fat, what causes diabetes, what causes high blood pressure. Well, you start with everything that I said, some of those same companies are the medical, pharmaceutical, agricultural complex. So let's vilify animal fat because what we can do is we can create a food system that is symbiotic with our healthcare system, which is symbiotic with our pharmaceutical system. The correlations are there. And when you look at our food supply right now, most farmers and ranchers have to answer to a chemical company before they can actually provide us food. That chemical company is now owned by Bayer, which it started out as Monsanto. Monsanto manipulates the seed and they make a lot of chemicals. And that somehow gets into our food supply because they, they are sort of like the middleman, the trusted third party in the food production mm-hmm. is what you're saying. Well, they, once they have the processing and once they have the, the manipulation of the seed, they can take that manipulation throughout the whole food industry. You think about that. I've manipulated the seed to where it will not grow unless I put this chemical on this or this herbicide or this pesticide. Well, once it gets there, I'm going to take the seed. Well, it can't be processed like our ancestors processed it. We're going to process it a different way because it first started out as a deceptive seed. By having these pesticides and herbicides, I'm making my profit margins even bigger. I'm controlling the farmer because he has to say, yes, I will use these herbicides and pesticides. And the educational process of our agricultural system has changed from 1900 to the the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression of the 1930s to the 1950s when we were pretty powerful. Coming from World War II, we were making bombs in World War II. In the 1950s, we were making fertilizer. So you follow all these correlations of of the industrial food complex that was created basically manipulating the seed. It's unlimited. Just like with our dollar, they can print more money. Why can't they manipulate more seeds and drive more products? Because most people eat food because it tastes good. That's what they'll tell you. That's their first answer. Well, you know, I like to tell people there's a there's a company out there and it's called Real, Royal DSM. In 2021, they, they had revenues of over $8 billion. Only thing they do is design taste. They can put any type of taste on any type of product and you're going to say it tastes good. So our, our children are learning about food because it tastes good. It has nothing to do with proper consumption, how the body reacts to these chemicals. It has nothing to do with that. They just know that they're hungry, that it tastes good. They want more. If there's any question in the United States at this point in time that food is a drug, we need to start this education process and we need to do it responsibly. And I believe in the Bitcoin world with our type of ethos of truth and uh, verify, then trust, and the decentralized mindset with our money system, we're, we're going to do that within our food system because they can manipulate anything, and they are doing it right now as vilifying animal protein and saying that it's bad and that it's basically destroying the planet. And so what they do is they create a new fake meat commodity, stack that on top of the the lack of value from where we just came from, and they create another false value commodity. They manipulate the price of beef in a way to where people think there's a shortage, which there's not. It's a bottleneck within the processing system. 
once people have that perception, they say, well, I really don't like this fake meat. And Bill Gates has even said, <laughs> which he's very much into fake meat. He's actually been on record saying, you don't like the hamburgers now, but you're going to because they're going to taste good. And, <laughs> and that's all done in a chemical lab. It's not, it has nothing to do with soil. It has nothing to do with the animal. It has nothing to do with the, the molecules, the vitamins, the minerals that we need from this earth. From the water supplies, you know, you look at this as far as regenerative, regenerative agriculture has always been under attack since after the 1950s, especially when we started really getting good at making chemicals. Hmm. Well, let's talk about commercial farming then, because that that's, uh, you know, a big part of this agricultural industrial complex mm-hmm. where you do a lot of monocropping, a lot of commercial farming, you know, where, where you take pigs and put them in cages, chickens, put them in cages, and they, they don't have a very good life. They are, you know, farmed, you know, in a very unhealthy way. Can you describe how we came to this point where we are doing all of these things where, you know, like we have entire fields of soybeans, for example, instead of having them be more like it is in nature where they grow with lots of other stuff. And I like to give my personal like experience in my life and my family as an example. In the Texas Panhandle, the Texas Panhandle is is on top of the Llano Estacado. It is the end of the Great Plains. It's the southern tip of the Great Plains. Before we were monocropping, before we really established everything as far as these big agricultural farms that were many sections, thousands upon thousands of acres. You know, we had flowing grasslands that were some of the most beautiful parts of the of the country. And my grandfather was in, you know, he came from he he probably started really farming when he was probably about on his own when he was about twelve or thirteen is a, is the family story. That would have been about nineteen early nineteen hundreds. Well, the way he farmed was regenerative all the way. They didn't know what chemicals were. They used the equipment that they had. They they focused on, you know, their their community. They didn't have to think any further than their community. You start with your family. You start with your family's table. You start with everybody in your family's table. You talk to your community and say, hey, I'm growing this. I'm growing this. I have four to five crops this year. I've got a couple of hogs. I've got, you know, 10 cattle I'm going to have access to. Whatever it was on an individual basis, you were a decentralized food supply system to your community and to your family. With the evolution of what happened with the Great Depression, the many different things that happened with, you know, wheat in on the Great Plains, how we destroyed soil by tilling the soil. There were so many things that we can go into, but the evolution of what my family saw was as these chemicals came in. You know, the farmer was basically, you know, especially in the 50s, they said, hey, use this fertilizer. You won't have to worry about wheat or, you know, this type of watering systems. You know, it was across the board. These fertilizers and herbicides started coming out. The farmers didn't know. There's like, heck yeah, this is going to make my life easier. I mean, I got here for just by surviving the dang dust bowl. (laughs) I want anything I can get as far as help. And so back then it was something that was of abundance and it was something that was extremely innocent. 
as these years have gone through, and especially after 1971, where Eric Butts of the Nixon administration looked at the nation and said, it's either it's time to go big or go home within our agricultural system. And that's when he said, you're going to go fence to fence or you're going to be out of business. And what he meant by that is you're going to monocrop. You're not going to do four or five crops anymore. You're going to do one crop. You're going to either do corn you're going to do wheat or you're going to do soybean, whatever it is. And by doing that, you create an apparatus that had control from the chemical companies themselves, and they could design the seed and the chemicals in a way that really drove their profit margins very high. And they could say, hey, look at us, we're feeding the world. And that's how our food complex became a global focus instead of that community focus in which my grandfather mastered. And everybody across the state of Texas, and especially the panhandle of Texas, was very good at it because we came from agricultural and ranching. We had three of the biggest ranch- ranchers ranches in the world at one time in the state of Texas, and it was up here in this part of Texas. It was the Four Sixes Ranches, the Matador, and the XIT. Well, if you look at that, what was going on at that time? Well, we were grazing the land. We were actually letting the cows be the land tools for that soil. And then we were growing our local produce for our local communities. After 1971, that was shot. That was done. And it was done by subsidies. It was done by the evolution of, you know, ethanol is going to be good for our planet. Because once again, let's look at petroleum and how it's been, you know, totally destroyed as far as, you know, it's destroying the planet. Well, that was the same thing in agriculture, too. So there's so many correlations that you can look at. I always just go back to the more the dollar gets debased, the more you're you're basically your value is stolen from you. It touches everything in your life. There is a deception there saying, oh, we're better off right now than we are. No, we're far worse off right now in nutrition than even you look at the Great Depression. Yes, people were hungry. They had better nutrition than we have as a country right now, though. The soup kitchens, well, those were made with bone. They were made with a different type of protein that we can't even get our hands on now unless you can afford it. And you have good market access to that protein. Hmm. Well, so let's talk about this being overfed and undernourished, because in a sense, like everyone has plenty to eat. You know, it's very hard to go hungry in the United States, especially with all the food banks and things like that. But I think what you're contending and what's been happening is that despite all of the food consumption, our bodies are not getting the nutrients that they need. And therefore, we're much more unhealthy than we were before. How does that process sort of like change? Like, how do you change that? I don't know, I guess that focus from being fed to being nourished, because that's something that I don't think a lot of people really understand, or they think they're the same thing, but it's really not. Yeah, and it it is. It's hard to get to that point, even if you're somebody that's very aware and intentional about your consumption. You know, it's hard to kind of understand that, why am I hungry? You know, we went through a phase where I remember when I was younger and a lot of marathoners were just stacking carbs, stacking carbs, (laughs) and they were still gaining weight. They couldn't figure figure it out. You know, hey, I ran 150 miles this week. Why am I, you know, not burning this off? And so there's been a big evolution of understanding and awareness about basically what is energy, correct? What is power? What is, you know, what is good for the brain as far as protein to the brain? 
right now in 2022, a lot of people in my lifetime, I'm a generational X. A lot of people in my lifetime went through this type of system saying we were healthy back then. <laughs> what happened? Mm -hmm. And so me, I have a responsibility to say it was not always like this, folks. And this is not a judgment against anybody as far as their health, as far as their weight, anything like that. What it is, is like there's a big movement right now that has become very aware that there is a deception within our food industry. People are understanding it's like, oh, okay, now I understand why I, you know, I'm always dieting every year. Why is our nutritional system as far as education delivery? It's always based on a 12 month process because you got to, you can restart it over every 12 months. You look at our food supply, it gets restarted every 12 months in a way that nobody really achieves that type of health, but you have a big subset of people that are, it's basically coming together right now. And the beef initiative is, is trying to lead that in a way that we can, as far as how I'll, I'll spell it out as far as the vertical integration. But I believe that people are ready to hear that things are different now. And within the Bitcoin community, especially, I mean, carnivores, I mean, everybody's, you know, the animal protein. And what I want people to understand is this is not a vegan or a, or a carnivore war here. This is about true food intelligence. This is about you get to make your own choices, but let's verify before we trust here. And then you can make your decisions based on how do you get started with your consumption model that you're going to move forward with. It's not a hard sell because many people, I just did a podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. He's a heart surgeon and he's been a heart surgeon for 20 years. And he basically is redoing his whole practice. At one time, he, he tried everything and he was overweight. He admits this. He went through a process of awareness, of an awakening, basically, and saying, man, everything I've ever tried to do was just wrong. I kept, I just, I did everything. And he, this is a doctor that's highly educated, highly successful. Why is his weight and his health not improving? Whenever he's following the centralized model that is based on deception from the very beginning of the source of the seed. Once we get that clarity out there that anybody can have an entry point of understanding. And my focus is, especially since I'm from Texas, is that you need to look at animal protein again. Just start there. Just consume animal protein and let's lose. Let's start with seed oils out of your life. Just be aware whenever you're consuming seed oils. If you do those two things, your life is going to change. And I have no doubts about that. Well, so if you are getting rid of seed oils, I think you have to substitute it with something sure. else because it's very difficult to not have oil <laughs> in your cooking. Right. And uh, you, you keep talking about animal protein. But for me, like the big, big thing that's so satisfying is animal fat. Oh, and yeah. That's something that... I don't think people really realize just how much of it our bodies need of that in order to stay healthy is oftentimes like if you if you eat too much of the protein, uh, like too many lean cuts or something like that, oftentimes you'll, you'll have a little bit of undernourishing in the same way mm -hmm. that you might if you're just eating a lot of vegetables. And, you know, where, whereas, you know, animal fat, that that really kind of has this satiating effect on your on your body. And so... Well, let's talk about like what proper nutrition looks like. You know, obviously, I think we, we have some very bad food habits right now. And I think as a country, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said that 
where it, you know, food's basically a drug at this point. And there's, you know, the actual food that's nourishing is, has been vilified for the last, uh, you know, 70 years or something like that. What does good nutrition look like in this day and age? And like, what's been corrupted? What hasn't? And how do you know? <laughs> That's a broad question. And it's definitely the question you have to lead with. And I, I try to keep everything right now, especially in my life, very simple and very decentralized. Hmm. Okay. If, if I can, acceptance is a key. If I can accept that I'm going to be decentralized in my intent and that I'm going to put that low time preference as far as what I, I, I study research, what is that going to take me to? Well, I want to eliminate every touch point in a centralized food processed way. If I can do that and I can identify the points of contact of that nutrition, then it's going to be pretty, it's a pretty good chance that nutrition is going to be very solid. I'm not a dietitian. I'm very lucky that I grew up eating like a farmer does. I always had plenty of produce, plenty of protein in my diet. I didn't have to worry about it. I knew what tasted good from the day I was started walking basically. And a lot of people don't have that, you know, opportunity. And I understand that. But as far as saying that, you know, as far as a nation, why aren't we just basically wanting to know who produces our food? What is wrong with that? Why is that a wrong question to ask? And I don't think that people are afraid to answer that question. I don't think they know how to answer that question. And that's where we go in as far as education. We're saying if you can go out there and meet your local animal protein provider that has put intentional time into the earth and into this animal, you're going to want to know that person moving forward. And if you can create that relationship, you've cut out every touch point in a centralized food industry that has basically gotten us here. Let's start there. Let's don't make this difficult. Let's start with animal protein. And that's what the beef initiative is actually trying to do. We're going to, and I've been able to put together a team. I've been working on this for over a year, but how we're moving forward is we're going to do a vertical integration. The beef initiative is going to perform a vertical integration from the soil all the way into human health. And we're going to basically, in the long run, you know, we have the beef initiative right now. In the long run, that will be a health initiative that people understand because the vertical integration of touch points that we're going to identify and that we're going to say, we have now control of this from the seed of that, of the grass, of that consumption of that cow. Let's just use the cow all the way to the processing, to the supplying, to the market access to your table, the beef initiative will be able to orchestrate that to the consumer. But what I'm going to be announcing next week is we actually now have access to the processing, uh, let's say the processing industry in the state of Texas. We have a lot of precedents that we're going to be bringing forward that we can start advising on these local processing centers that are needed for our local communities. So we can get that conversation saying, I don't want as many touch points to my animal protein. And we, we're not going to get overly complicated with that message. If you live in a certain place, you want to know who's producing and supplying your animal protein. You don't need labels. You need relationships. You need communities. You need Bitcoiners that think in the same way. 
if we can bring that along with the, I think the Bitcoin community has that responsibility of eliminating all these touch points that are just happening with our food. We all have to travel. We all have to eat different, you know, at different times. This is not a black and white issue. It's very gray, but if we can be intentional of eliminating those touch points within our food processing and our food delivery systems, we're going to win this because we're cutting out all the deception as much as we can. We're creating a verification system that we can trust. And if we follow that ethos, isn't that what we're doing in the Bitcoin community? Hmm. And that elimination of these trusted third parties, and I think you've made the case today that you know these trusted third parties are taking advantage of us and basically making more money at our expense and our health's expense. You know, we can have a more direct relationship and a more peer-to-peer relationship. And, you know, I mean, you still might get deceived, obviously, but, you know, you don't have this trusted third party that's going to sort of insert things, weird rules into there that really only benefit, you know, those companies and not either the farmer or the rancher or us, the, the, the consumer. So that direct relationship seems to be the key here. And that, that seems to be what you're doing with the beef initiative. You know, I always say, Hey, go, you know, go meet your local rancher and shake his hand. You know, not everybody mm-hmm. can do that. Right. I can do that. My rancher here is, I have several of course, but just because of what I do, but my local provider, his name is Justin. I've done a podcast with him. You know, I go out there and see him every two weeks and I shake his hand. I say, Hey, what's going on, Justin? What do you've got coming? What, what's the market like? What are you thinking? You know, and I'm going to go to a conference with him up in the panhandle and it's, it's basically a rancher's conference. And so I have that type of relationship with him to where I'm educated. I, I understand the process. And so I'm very fortunate. Not everybody can do that. So what are we missing? What do we need to tie? What do we need to bridge, basically? Well, we need to bridge the communication. And I'm starting off with Bitcoiners to ranchers, ranchers to Bitcoiners. And we're going out to ranchers and saying, hey, we want to know who you are, why you're doing what you're doing as far as regenerative ranching and farming. And we want to help you. How can we help you? And so that begins the conversation. And then we, we start purchasing. We find, we verify, we trust. And once we've done that, we go to that rancher and we say, hey, let me tell you something about Bitcoin. And I want you to be educated about it. It's not about me asking if you will take Bitcoin for your beef. That, that's not how we're approaching this at all as far as the beef initiative. This is value for value education. And it's out of respect. It's out of heritage. And it's out of tradition that we need to bring back, you know, as Texans for one, but everybody across the nation that is a Bitcoiner, we need to slow down when it's about consumption and when it's about education about our nutrition. And we're building that model within the Beef Initiative. But if you're in the city, you're going to be able to come to the Beef Initiative. And whenever we release our, you know, a, a database, that's a little bit more robust than we have right now. You're going to say, hey, can I trust these guys? And you're, we're going to say, you're dang right you can. And because we're going to move towards, you know, the beef initiative having its own stamp of approval. And we're going to say, thank you, USDA. This is the, this is the beef initiative stamp. And once we start doing that, because we verify and trust in a decentralized way that is not controlled by a centralized apparatus that likes to keep us out of the understanding and the education of our food, you know, we're going to, we're going to gain some strength and power and we're going to create a new industry, food industry, I think that is ripe for 
the times. And I think a lot of people are wanting this to happen and they're becoming very intentional because you look at food supply chain lines, you look how the food supply chains are going to be disrupted right now, currently in Canada and how they'll probably be disrupted here within a couple of weeks in the United States. What happens whenever you have a food supply shortage and you're wanting to go buy that box of hot pockets or pizza and it's not there anymore because it doesn't take long for a supermarket to clear out. Why aren't you being intentional about your food right now just because of the nutritional value, but also access? What is your market access to nutrition? Have you have you defined that as a person? Have you defined that as a rancher saying, hey, I need a new way of market access to my customers? We've identified all those touch points. And like I said, we have a vertical integration that we're about to be moving forward with in 2022. And I think that would be wonderful if I could actually get beef straight from my rancher instead of having all these middlemen in between, you know, the last of which is your grocery store. But there's a lot of different people that touch it, uh, isn't there? Can you like kind of describe for us all the different middlemen that go in currently? (laughs) Well, I like to I like to use this one and this is verified. This is a good story. I like to tell stories, Jimmy. But, uh, you know, I say it's the modern day cattle drive that nobody knows about. Let's say you have a bunch of cattle down in uh, Brazil or Argentina. And so those, those cows start off down there, you know, they start, they, they do, they eat some grass and we, what, I don't know. I don't know what they eat in, in South America. What, you know, what is it? We really don't know, but that cattle, you know, that big herd of cattle, let's say 2000 cattle, they make their way all the way into Mexico. So they make it to Mexico and they say, well, in Mexico, we're going to finish them off with some grains from these chemical companies, but we're going to do it in Mexico. And so we're going to fatten these cows up and get them fat because you got to have a fat cow to make a good profit. And so once we get those cows fattened up, we take them across the border and then we go process them in the state of Texas. Well, the state of Texas, that's the type of beef that you're getting in the state of Texas for the most part. Majority of Texans, there's not a percentage I can put on there, but it's a good number. So let's look at the state of Texas. So we have that cattle drive. Well, in, in the state of Texas, you have a lot of good beef that's being raised and produced and processed. Well, that processor say, nah, Texans, you don't get this beef. We're sending this overseas to China because they're paying top dollar for it. And so with that many touch points, by the time that cattle came from Brazil all the way to, let's say, to, you know, Abilene, Texas on a table of a four of a family, probably about 10 to 12 touch points that happened within that food that is part of the industrial food complex and the global processing apparatus that we all have to cater to. That's a lot of touch points and you don't know what happened. It doesn't matter how many labels, how many digital apparatuses they put on that cattle and they say it's safe and it's saving the planet. You have no clue, but it has a stamp on it and that's the USDA stamp. Well, if you know your local rancher, let's say you've met Cole, you've purchased from Cole, K&C Cattle there in Austin, and he's riding the city limits of Austin. He's a regenerative farmer and rancher. He's a fourth generation Texas rancher. He knows what he's doing with that beef. When you meet him and you're in Austin, Texas, you go shake his hand or you just go through the beef initiative or you go through a lot of the plebs. You know that you're going to get some beef that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to look at all these labels and spend a week researching our food supply because you're not for sure this new chemical that they're putting into it is going to be safe or not. And that's your verification. 
you don't have to worry about that anymore because you're going to go to Cole and he's going to say, I have a protocol. I, I have a protocol. Believe it or not, ranchers have a protocol. They will tell you exactly what they're doing. If there's any chemicals used whatsoever, no antibiotics. If they do finish them off greed or on grain, then they're going to tell you, you know, this is grass fed, but then it is grain finished. But this grain finish actually came from this brewery that is non-GMO grain and they grow their own grain. And so you're going to find this things out whenever you meet that rancher and you're going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to trust you because you just verified your protocol within the beef initiative. We're going to define protocols. We're going to say, rancher, tell us your protocol. Let us create this market access for you. Let us let you use a decentralized protocol. That's going to give you a new store of value that your grandfather really knew about, but he didn't have access to You have access to it now. And you also have access to his regenerative ways. We're going to tie some dots there that people that don't realize it need to be connected, basically, I guess, instead of tying, we'll connect them. Once we connect those dots, we're going to have a lot of people understanding. I don't want touch points with my food. I want to know who's producing it. And in the past, we haven't been able to do that as much as we can now because, you know, advancements of communication and just how society is right now. Mm. Well, and you don't have to send it to one of the four beef processing plants in the country. Sure. Like there's there's only a few. And instead, it can you can source locally and get it locally. And you kind of have a good, much better idea of what the quality is. And you're supporting people instead of giant corporations. And you have a relationship and income for the rancher is a lot better since they're not dependent on a single party, isn't it? Well, and you bring up a good point. A lot of the ranchers are, are kind of, you know, they're handcuffed. And once again, this is not a judgment. It's just how it is. Everybody's making a living here. We're just doing what we can in the environment that we're in. And so you you get that that rancher that has to sell his cow. He can't get that. He knows when he goes in that in that calving season where he has that calf, let's say. Well, in 18 months, he has to take it to a processor. Cause that's the only time he can get into that processor having very little access to processing destroys the rancher and so many things that could be manipulated during that 18 month process that he has to continually be looking out for. Let's say futures markets, grain prices, droughts, all kinds of things that he has to be very aware of hoping in the end that after 18 months that he can sell that cow to that processing, then he can at least break even. You know, that's what he's shooting for. And so by, you know, having that kind of control system over him, let's say if he is, let's say he's coal and from KNC cattle, well, coal knows where he's going to take his processor because he has a microprocessor and he doesn't have to worry about those dates. Well, he doesn't have to worry about grain prices. He doesn't have to worry about commodity prices. He doesn't have to worry about futures. He doesn't have to worry about, he has to worry about drought. Everybody has to worry about drought, but he gets to eliminate a lot of those touch points. So he's taking a lot of the profit margins away from the corporate and global processing systems. So his margins with that cattle just went up just right there. Well, then his time frame has changed. Maybe he needs a low time preference a little bit longer for that cow to be where he wants it to be. Or maybe he can speed it up, that that's up to his protocol and he's going to know that protocol. So his understanding of how he's going to be able to navigate through the monetary system th through that time, he just got 30% more leverage 
of being able to survive as a rancher. Well, once we take that to the plate and we say, this is how it is. We understand this. This is how you can move forward because in the state of Texas, we have new five new processors coming up and I'm not saying that's happening. And then maybe I am saying that's happening. We'll find out. But once you have that access to those processors, those ranchers are now have more leverage and monetary value. Now they understand Bitcoin and now they're accepting basically maybe Bitcoin and beef process or uh, transactions they have new leverage that they never understood that they had. And now the beef industry changes in a way that they didn't have confidence in. There's many ranchers out right now. And I'll go out there and ask them, I said, where is the value of the cow? A lot of people can't understand. They, some people can't even understand that question because it's a hard one to answer. Some people know exactly where the value of the cow used to in the state of Texas, the value of the cow was in the cow itself. And then maybe the value of the cow became the land in which that cow grazed because the land was bought up private ownership. The ranches weren't as big. And then whenever we went into a chemical system of raising our food, well, maybe the value of that cow is in, now is in the grain. Well, now that was definitely something that was prominent for decades. Well, let's look at it now. What is it? Where's the value of the cow? Well, I'm finding out maybe the value of the cow is in the USDA insurance policy that they have to sign and they get to leverage and subsidize every year. The cow is out of the equation now. The importance of nutrition of that cow is out. It doesn't matter. I'm going to get my USDA insurance policy and I'm going to be able to get that check. And I'm going to be able to do this another year. And I'm going to be able to rationalize and justify it because I'm under this control apparatus that makes me use all these different protocols instead of my own protocol. Once we bring that awareness and we have these basically different options and solutions and proof of work based on proof of concept in the beginning, and then we now have proof of work because we do. We have a lot more proof of work than anybody really understands. And I've just been kind of waiting to, you know, <laughs> to bring that out. Once we have that proof of work and we can say that, that's when we become the label. Well, this is the beef initiative. That's when that rancher say, well, this is my protocol. And you're going to have people that love grass fed, grass finished. You're going to have love people that have grass fed, you know, grain finished. It's going to be up to the individual and everybody goes in a different direction. But as long as you have those those fewer touch points, your life is going to get better. You're going to have food security instead of food insecurity. You're going to be able to answer questions like, why do I desire what I desire when I'm consuming this food? Well, I know why I do because it's good and I know the owner and I respect him. I send him Christmas cards every year. You know, we're, we're going to be able to change a mindset of, of a country and we're going to start in the state of Texas. Hmm. Well, that's a really brilliant way to do things. And I, I really hope that we get sort of a more decentralized food future instead of, you know, having things that go through few choke points that the government can completely regulate and industry can corrupt and instead have sort of direct, you know, bilateral agreements instead of having these third trusted third parties in there. Where can people find out more about the beef initiative and you know, what you're doing, how they can get their own food, maybe even some education around all of the different things that we talked about with regard to the quality of the food. Sure. Uh, right now I'm using the platform. I'm using Twitter, of course, and I'm at, at Modern T Man. And then we also have at Beef Initiative. 
And we have a telegram that, you know, people are starting to come into and that's at beef initiative as well. Uh, our platform is beefinitiative.com. We're bringing in producers. People can go there. And one thing about the beefinitiative.com is that if you're a rancher out there, if you're a Bitcoiner and you have somebody that you've verified and now trust, you can go to our producer section, put that rancher in there and let's, you know, get some people saying, Hey, you know, I live in this part of the country. I'm going to go check this, you know, rancher out and shake his hand because my other pleb put him in here and we're going to create that kind of a crowdsourcing in the beginning. I think within a month or two, we'll, we'll broaden the, the database, but I want it to, in the beginning to be something that all of us Bitcoiners can do because we are a Bitcoin company. This is what we are. I mean, everybody that's in, you know, build the team that I'm building, they're going to be Bitcoiners. This is, it's nothing but Bitcoin. So anybody out there thinking crypto or anything like that, no, don't even go here with it. <laughs> and so you, I also have a podcast that I'm moving forward with and it's called Texas Slim's Vision. Hmm. Well, that sounds awesome. And I really hope that you guys are very successful. I, I know I'll be ordering some beef from either directly from the rancher or from, from this website and stuff. Thank you for coming on and getting us educated on all this. Hey, Jimmy, thank you for having me on. I've, I've enjoyed our conversations and I, I, I did forget to let everybody know that we're having a, a conference, a beef initiative conference in Kerrville, and that'll be the weekend of April 23rd and 24th in Kerrville, Texas. And we're going to be releasing all that information next week. And so people can come out to Kerrville. We'll have speakers as Marty Bent, Parker Lewis, Adam Curry, Cole from KNC Cattle, and a few others, Michael from Oshi, the Oshi app. And so we're going to have a lot of education and we're going to have a lot of different touch points of our food described and where people can start making that move into the beef initiative and into a decentralized food system. Oh, that sounds wonderful. How far is Kerrville from Austin? It's about two hours. You head out, uh, I believe it's 271, 290. I can't remember there at the Y, but it's out in the hill country. It's worth the drive. You go through towns like Johnson City and Yano and you go through mm -hmm. Dripping Springs. So there's a lot of places you can go and just, you know, people in Austin, you know, get out of Austin for a while and take a small vacation out to, you know, an Airbnb out in the hill country or whatever and come, you know, hang out the beef initiative. We're going to have a big steak dinner. We're going to have actually a Sunday service after the next day after the conference. It's going to be at the Western Museum of Art, which is a phenomenal international museum they have there in Kerrville. There's going to be plenty to do, a lot of good education, like I say, a lot of good food, a lot of good you know people just coming out, being very intentional about their nutrition and how we're going to decentralize everything. All right. Are you going to have some barbecue available? You betcha. Of course. <laughs> I think I'm sold. I there think I'm going to have to go out to Kerrville. All right. We'd love to have um, you. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on my show. Sure. And uh, of course, I was on your show earlier. So, but thank you. And, and yeah, people, you need to go and check this stuff out. Thank you, Jamie. I really appreciate you. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchain.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Texas Slim can be found on Twitter at ModernTeamMan and BeefInitiative.com. Until next time, fiat the lendest.